Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be gathered again, where we get to come and and encourage one another on in our faith, stand with each other in, in real authentic love and community. Lord, continue to build that in our hearts, in our midst. Father, thank you that, Lord, when we gather like this, we're being challenged. Lord, we're being um, encouraged. We're being strengthened. We're being renewed. We just pray that, Holy Spirit, you would, you would do all that and more. Draw us to yourself. Help us to see the beauty, the treasure, the hope that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you remember a time you were away from family or friends and all you could think about was their well-being? Maybe they were facing a trial or a hospitalization of some kind, a personal emergency, but you couldn't be there and you couldn't get there. It was frustrating for you. You were kept back from some situation, some, something. Maybe it was work, maybe it was your kids or, or money or distance. And as a result, you, just, you wanted a play-by-play from the people who were there. You wanted to know how things were going. You can relate to that, I'm sure. You want to figure out how you can get there as soon as possible. I can remember just several months back, almost a year ago now, I remember driving to a friend's house around 2 a.m. because they were facing real trial, real personal trial. I drove 35 minutes, and, and then he opens the door. He and his wife were awake, and they were just really going through a lot. And uh, I don't even think he knew I was, I was coming at 2 a.m. We had talked on the phone earlier that night. And there I was, um, and, and we just kind of laughed when, I, when he opened the door. Like, what are you doing here? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just knew I had to come. just wanted to be here with you guys. And so we just sat around his table for about an hour, prayed, and then I went home. I just wanted to be present. Being away from those you love when you know they're suffering or facing trial, this is what Paul is experiencing in our passage today. And we feel his love, we feel the deep concern at every turn. There's an overflow of emotion here. What do Paul's longings and his concerns for the Thessalonian church have to do with us? I believe that there's a pattern that we're going to see in Paul's emotions and in his prayer that we're to follow. What longings and concerns do we have for one another? What are those longings and concerns rooted in? And how are they being expressed here at local church? Are we finding the life-giving joy that Paul experienced in the Thessalonians? Are we experiencing that here among ourselves? Some of us could really use a dose of life-giving joy. We're going to look at three emotions in our passage. First, we're going to look at intense longing. Second, legit concern. And third, life-giving joy. So let's look at intense longing. He says, we wanted to come to you. We'll start in verse uh, 17 of chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed. You are our glory and joy. We'll pause there. Paul talks here about being orphaned. Literally, he's torn away from them. And it was forced. Do you remember what was going on? 
We read about the Thessalonians in Acts, and we learned that there was severe suffering and persecution because of the gospel's impact on the people of Thessalonica. The heightened persecution, it required Paul and his companion Silas to leave the city much sooner than they had anticipated. So Paul compares it to the traumatic experience of a child being taken away from their parents. We were orphaned. That's how it felt, he says. It was painful. I'm sure there were many tears associated with them being torn, orphaned. He says, out of intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. And as he's, he's reassuring the Thessalonian believers that of his aching desire to be present. He just wanted to be present with them. This is a young church. They're facing severe trials and persecution. He just, he wanted to be present. In verse 18, it says, uh, or it goes from we, it changes to certainly I, Paul. So he's writing for, you know, Paul, uh, uh, Paul is writing for Timothy and Silas as well. But the we changes to certainly I, Paul, did again and again. I wanted to come to you. It, It wasn't just, oh, well, you know, persecution happened. We had to move on quicker than normally we would. And so, okay, we'll move on to the next city. No big deal. This isn't that's not his mentality. That's not his attitude. These are people that he, as we learned last week, that he loved sincerely. He knew the church was young. He knew that they were facing severe suffering and persecution. He's burning up on the inside. He wants to find out how they're doing. And he says, I wanted to come to you, but Satan stopped us. Or the Satan, more literally, the deceiver. You see, Paul understood spiritual opposition was real. He understood that the forces of evil were against his mission to care for this new church, to teach them the way of holiness and to bring, bring them comfort through the gospel. And Paul recognized that these powers were behind some of the ordinary frustrations and the spoiled plans that they were facing. Was Paul booted out of Thessalonica by the city officials and, and really not welcomed to return? Is that what he was facing? Is that why he couldn't come sooner than he wanted Were these the roadblocks that were in the way? Because he was told he couldn't return? We don't know, really. Had he received death threats if he returned? We could imagine so. He says Satan stopped us, or literally the the term stopped us means to cut into. It's terminology that originally referred to a military practice of cutting up a road to make it impossible for a pursuing army to, to follow them. Verse 19, he says, For what is our hope in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he returns? What is our hope? He speaks of the return of Christ. This is something that the Thessalonians need some teaching on, and he'll get to it. We'll get to it as we continue to read the letter. He speaks of the return or the perusia of Christ. This is the official term for a visit of a person of high rank, especially of kings or emperors visiting a province when they would come or they would return. This is what he's speaking of, that Jesus is coming again. But what is our hope in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? What is our hope? Now, you would expect for him to say, what you, would, what you expect him to say, oh, well, the cross is our hope. What Jesus accomplished on the cross You would expect him to say, the resurrection of Jesus, of course, that's his hope. 
And he doesn't say that. Here he says, you are our hope. So what's going on? First, look with me at Galatians chapter 6. He writes to another church this way. The church of Galatia, he writes in chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to boast in anything else except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what's going on? You see, here in Galatians 6, Paul's saying, my present standing, my present position is in Christ. I have been justified by his finished work. In other words, his obedient life and his substitutionary death on the cross for my sins, him receiving the punishment that I deserve, I'm boasting in what he accomplished on my behalf, and it's what I stand in. It's how I've entered this, the family of God to begin with, by faith in Jesus and what he accomplished, his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice. It was enough for you and I to be accepted before a holy God. You see, the Bible paints a real problem that all of mankind has, a brokenness, a sin problem. And Paul understood that that was dealt with on the cross. And he celebrated it. And he said, I'm not going to boast in anything else except the cross. And yet, here in Thessalonians chapter 2, what's he doing? He's boasting in the Thessalonians. But why? It's a result of the finished work of Christ. He's talking about his hope for the future and what the cross actually produced in the lives of the Thessalonians. If you notice in Thessalonians chapter 2, he speaks about them being his crown. And not a tiara-type crown, but a wreath given to athletes after they win a race or a competition. And wreaths back then, uh, when given to an athlete that won, would have been woven from branches or flowers, and they'd eventually fall apart. They were perishable. But the wreath, the crown he's speaking of, is imperishable. In essence, Paul is saying about the Thessalonians, you will be my victory wreaths at the return of Jesus. Author N.T. Wright, he says, you're a sign. He's essentially saying that Paul is saying, you're a sign of God's dramatic work of his starting something new, something the world has never seen. Oh, isn't that sweet? He's saying that Paul is saying, you, Thessalonians, are a sign of God's dramatic work, of him starting something new, something the world has never seen before. Well, what has God begun through the church? Different social backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different racial backgrounds coming together as one new family. What is our common bond here today, 2,000 years later? It's the same thing, different social and economic and racial backgrounds, and we're gathered together, and it's something dramatic and something beautiful. Our common bond is Christ. It's what unites us. Something the world has never seen. So Paul's saying, this has everything to do with victory, everything to do with certainty and joy and achievement. He's boasting in the Thessalonians, he loves them. And he says, he says it this way, you are our joy, our glory, our joy when Christ returns. So you see this intense longing that he has to be with them. Second, 
we see legit concern that he has for them. Starting in in verse 1 of chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, do you hear the angst there, the, the desire to be present? So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you know well, as you well know. Uh, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Parents lie awake at night and they worry about their kids sometimes. It's part of the gig, being a parent. A few months ago, our oldest, Jude, he's in seventh grade, went on a, like a four-night retreat with his seventh grade class. And it was supposed to be where they're going down all these rivers and, and natural springs. And, and they did that. It was the coldest week, I think, that we've had in months of all, of all weeks for them to go. Well, the first night, Valerie just couldn't sleep. All she could think about was that very thin blanket we sent with Jude. <laughs> Is he warm enough? And we had no Wi-Fi. I mean, he had no Wi-Fi. He had no cell phone reception. None of that. It was like the early 90s again. Um, so... <laughs> There was no way to know until the next day when he called, and he's like, oh, actually, we, we had heat in our cabin. So, great. But she was just tossing and turning. I slept like a baby. I didn't care. <laughs> but parents do lie awake at night and worry about their kids. Most parents do. And, and this is the sense I get from the Apostle Paul. The Thessalonian church, they were like his children. He had spent time there. He had labored among them. He had invested his very life. He had he had. Uh, spoken the truth of Jesus, and these people had embraced Christ, and this new beautiful community had begun. But then, as we read, Paul and Silas had to leave very quickly. Their lives were at stake. And this church was left to deal with the persecution and the suffering that was happening. So he was rightfully concerned. And his writing to them this way, I hope you can see, this isn't about his ego. It's not about how many churches that Paul starts or how many people are in his churches He's distressed about their well-being, about their faith. We're learning about the pastoral heart of Paul, but we also should learn something about the pattern being set for us and the heart we should have for one another. Paul couldn't go to them. He couldn't take it any longer, so he does the next best thing. He sends Timothy. And he was left, Paul was left alone in Athens. It was a selfless move pastoral move on Paul's part. And he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. I wonder about this. You know, obviously Paul couldn't get there for some reason. And they had maybe told him that he couldn't return. And so he's like, hey, hey, Tim, you want to go? It's violent. Uh, I don't know what to expect when you get there, but you in? You good? (laughs) Timothy was good with it. Timothy went to strengthen and encourage them in their faith so that no one would be unsettled, he says, by these trials, so that no no one would be moved or shaken by the trials they were facing. You know how unsettling trials can be. 
You may be facing something right now that's very unsettling. Just this week, I've, I've spoken to a, a, two families in particular here within the church, another family outside of the church that just going through a lot of drama, a lot of unsettling trials. And it, and it concerns me what they're facing. We see Paul's pastoral heart. His main concern, his main fear for the Thessalonians is that they might have been swept off track because of these trials. That they may, may have just said, you know what? Forget this. We see in verse 3, his heart. For you know quite well, the second part of verse 3, for you know quite well that we were destined for these trials. He's reminding them that trials and suffering and persecution, they're not a sign of a lack of faith or that something's wrong with you. Persecution for faith in Jesus, it's actually normal and should be expected. We might not like to hear that, but it's normal. All around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ are enduring great trials, great suffering, great persecution, harassment, fines, arrests, imprisonment, even death. It's happening now, right now. part of what it means to be associated with jesus we need to expect it be willing to endure it that's what he taught the thessalonians before he left you know i was i was interviewed this week twice by college students um, who are in a religion course right now and they had to interview a priest or a rabbi or um, somebody so they they asked me and um so I sat down with uh, two, two college students, and one of the questions that they asked was, what's the most difficult part of what you do as a pastor? And it really wasn't hard for me to answer because of the week I had had and my dear friend passing away. Listen, when, when you're invested in a community, the longer you're in this community, the more your heart just swells and grows and, and for the people that make up the community. We're not a logo, we're not a building, we're a people. A people who grow in genuine love for one another. And what happens is, because we live in a broken world, we face trials, all kinds of trials. We even face death. Painful things come our way, brokenness, disease. And the hardest thing for me is to watch people I love walk through those things. Now, I have the privilege of coming alongside a lot of that, and so do you, I know, as you're part of this community, but it's the hardest hardest thing because we have love for one another. Who likes to see someone that they love go through trials? And I would say, in addition to that, the hardest thing is watching people drift, people who have faced hard things in life, people who have become callous because of what they've gone through or because of what they thought God should give them and, and, and that's not what they're living out presently. And so they get hard and they just say, forget it. And they start to drift away. It's hard, really hard to see that. They start to just kind of say, ah. But trials, I know, have a sharpening effect on our lives. They force us to come to the end of ourselves, to lay down all our tricks and propensities to lean on other things besides God. Right? That's what trials do. 
And the faith Paul's concerned about in the Thessalonians could be translated faithfulness or loyalty or allegiance. So he was afraid the Thessalonians would compromise their faith, abandon their firm hold on the gospel, that they would abandon uh, Jesus. They had an unswerving loyalty to King Jesus. They were bowing their lives to him. And his concern is that as soon as he got to them, whenever he got to them, he'd find that they actually had abandoned that loyalty to Jesus. That was eating him up on the inside. He was concerned about that, like Valerie lying awake at night, thinking about Jude. Now, I know faith involves belief. It involves trust in Jesus as Messiah, as King. And it, it, it involves faith in the resurrection, that it's a real resurrection, and that it means so much for us, that it means life for us. It involves that. It involves owning up to our sin and and repenting, turning away from a life centered on us and looking to Jesus as our all. Faith involves that. But it also involves ongoing faithfulness to God, who's the one that you can look to and trust in in all circumstances. But then the voices start to come at us when we're facing trials of all kinds, right? You, You probably know these voices. They could come from your own head or maybe from friends around you. Can, can you really trust God? Does God really have your best interests at heart? What you're facing now, do, doesn't it reveal that he doesn't have your best interests at heart? He doesn't love you? Are you going to keep giving your life to Jesus as king? Wouldn't it be easier if you just abandon that? Just kind of compromise the fact that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life? Are you going to really follow his words? Are you going to, wouldn't it be easier if you just kind of added to that? All kinds of voices come our way. Now, these voices existed in Paul's day, and they, they exist in our day. I hear them. You ever hear them? He describes it as the tempter. Verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain for nothing. Is there someone that you should reach out to for encouragement? They're facing a, a severe trial, so much so they might be unsettled in their faith. Let me encourage you, don't wait. Reach out. Stand with them. Pray with them. Ask them how they're doing. The final emotion I want us to see here and that I believe is right there is life-giving joy. Paul had this life-giving joy. He says, now we really live. Let's look at verse 6. Now, Timothy, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself in our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make uh, your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. 
May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Timothy comes to Paul with a local story. He's highlighting God's grace at work in the lives of the Thessalonian church. We do local stories around here for those who are guests today. And our local stories are all about highlighting what God is doing in the lives of the people within this church. Timothy comes back with a beautiful report. Now I'm imagining a huge sigh of relief on Paul's part. that's, That's the sense as you read this, like, oh, oh. You're doing good. You think well of us. Everyone likes to hear that. I mean, you know this feeling. It's, it's that feeling that you get when you hear the report that your dad is cancer-free. It's the feeling you get when you hear the report of dear friends who decided to reconcile their marriage, even though they had been separated for a while. You know, Timothy has just now come from us, he says. Paul could hardly wait to write this letter. He had just come... Now, I need to write this. I, I, need to, I need to write back to the ones who are expressing love and who are standing firm in Christ. I just imagine this huge smile across Paul's face with tears welling up in his eyes as he's writing this. And look at the impact the Thessalonians' faith is having on Paul as he's facing persecution. In light of their standing firm in faith and, and standing firm in Christ, that brought joy to Paul's heart and helped him to endure persecution and suffering. In all our distress, in all our distress and persecution, he says, we were encouraged. He says, now we really live. In other words, hey, your allegiance to Jesus is real. Your commitment to his family is happening. You're standing firm in the Lord, and that is life to us. That is joy. It's like a good meal that just brings all the nutrients and the life-giving energy that returns to your body when you're just famished. You sit over a meal, you sit over whatever, you know. It just You feel the life come back in, into you. Now I really live. Now we really live. You are life to us. I can keep going because you're standing firm. That's what he's saying. And I was thinking about this um, this week after I had a, a sweet conversation with a, a, a new friend who communicated that he had uh, recently put his faith in Jesus. And I could just see the joy just radiating just in his face and in his life. I left that, that conversation just full of life, full of strength, full of energy. And I, I could relate just a little bit to what Paul's saying here. Now I really live. I'm seeing this faith expressed in my friend. Now I really live. Or what about the person who has been callous, has been pushing back on Jesus and just saying, you know what? I'm tired of living for him. I don't know if I have the strength anymore. I don't even know if I know what it means anymore to live for him. And you sit down with them and they're broken and they, the conversation, you know, you, you, you do your best to talk to the person who, who's struggling and they kind of leave. You don't know how it's going to, you don't even know if you'll see this person again because you had to say some hard things to them in love. And what about those types of conversations? And then they come back to you and they're changed. Their countenance has changed. Their perspective has changed. Something happened between your conversation and you seeing them again where their hearts were softened again to the truth of Jesus. What does that do to you? It fills you with life. Oh. This is what he's talking about. 
Do you have that kind of life-giving joy here? Do you experience it? If you don't, I pray that you will soon as you continue to press in one to another. You hear reports of people coming to faith. You hear reports of people who were hardened, uh, but you're unsure, or they're facing trials, and you're wondering, how how are they going to press through this one? They're standing firm in Jesus. I I remember another dear friend who, um, I think I can talk about it, Alex here, uh, who I remember a phone call with him um, many years ago after his mom passed away. Uh, He was 16 years old. I didn't know what to say. How's your faith, Alex? And I'll never forget what he said. It hasn't changed. I don't know if you remember saying that. It hasn't changed. I, and, and this was a time where I couldn't be present. I could only be present for a few days because I was living up in Maryland at the time. My heart was just torn. I knew what he was facing was so, so devastating. But on the phone, he said, it hasn't changed. My faith hasn't changed. It, it brought life to me. Paul goes on to tell tell them we're praying night and day that we might see you again and supply what is lacking. We pray most earnestly. This is an extremely strong Greek expression where he says, we're praying this is everything in us most earnestly. This is more exceedingly than you can imagine is how we're praying for you. I want to see you again. We want to see you again. We want to supply what's lacking. This was a young church. Paul needed to bring more foundational truths and, and teachings to them that he hadn't brought. We're going to learn uh, again about what some of those might were, what they were, as he teaches them in this letter um, in the coming weeks. So in what feels like a response to the relief and joy he's experiencing, he prays for them. And I love this prayer at the end of our text. And I want, I want us all to consider adopting the prayers that we find in Scripture, adopting them as our own. This is something I try to do in my prayer time. I find passages, I find prayers like this, and I just, boop, I just adopt it as my own. Just take this prayer and own it. Pray through it. I think of you. And he prays for a, that there would be a, uh, that the way would be cleared for them to come. And he prays that their love would increase and overflow. And he prays that they would be strengthened or established in their hearts, blameless and holy, when our Lord Jesus comes or returns. There it is again. He's speaking of the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. The prayer is an anticipation of the instruction he's about to bring. It's actually what we're going to find is an outline of things to come in his letter. But more than that, it's an overflow of love, and it's rooted in God's love. And here we find this pattern in Paul's emotions and in his prayer that we're to follow. You say, what's the pattern? Let me tell you what the pattern is. Intense longing, legit concern, and life-giving joy. Intense longing, one for another. Legit concern for each other. And life-giving joy when we find we're standing firm in faith. There's a pattern for us to follow. Now, if we want to reflect Paul's longings and concerns, then we have to look to the source of that pattern, to the mold. And what is that? It's Jesus. Because of God the Father's intense longing and legit concern for us, he sent his son. Do you often think of God as filled with longings and concern, as a God who's full of emotion? Filled with passion and desires, that he weeps and rejoices, he implores, he pursues? Let me tell you, Jesus is proof that God the Father is full of longings and concerns for you and I. Is this your vision of God? 
God's longings and concerns for us have found their fullest expression in the life-giving joy that is Jesus. Jesus chose the path of self-denial and of death and humiliation. Jesus came to us. He had to be present. He chose to be with us. And that's the pattern Paul's following. And now, local church St. Pete, it's our turn. It's our turn. It's our turn to show intense longing and legit concern and to share this life-giving joy that is ours in Christ. It's our turn. What longings and concerns do we have for one another? Are we experiencing the life-giving joy of seeing others standing firm in their faith? And does it even matter to us? I want it to more and more. This is where we find joy in the midst of suffering and persecution. When we're facing it, I can look out and see you standing firm in Christ. And that is fuel. That is joy. There's a pattern here for us to follow. Its, it's mold is Jesus. Let's look to him now. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Thank you for the intense longings and the legit concerns that have been met in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus has shown us those longings and concerns. Thank you for the great joy that we can now experience in Christ and share one to another. Lord, produce this in us, this pattern that we see. 